So that's what we call overtraining in our sports. And it's because you produce too much adrenaline that you desensitize your receptors, you start responding to your own adrenaline. So if you have an athlete who has a very high level of baseline adrenaline, he cannot do a lot of training because that will put him over the edge of adrenaline. On the other end, if you have someone with a lower muscle tone, indicating lower baseline of adrenaline, likely fast comp, so they can clear break down adrenaline super fast. They can tolerate more volume, more frequency. That was Coach Christian Thibodeau. And thanks for being with us for another episode. Training individualization. The longer you've been in the game of coaching and athletics, I think the more it means to all of us. Because how many times do we uh, put a program out there for athletes and we see some response, but then we see athletes who just aren't responding um, as we, we know they can, as we know their athletic um, potential can allow for. And the more we can expand our awareness of all these layers of these things that go into how, what athletes respond to and how we can give them better exercises and training splits and, and even how we coach them and go about that art of coaching them through it, we can just serve the athletic community so much more. Christian Thibodeau is a legendary coach. He's been on this podcast multiple times speaking in depth on his neurotyping system and training individualization You've seen, I've seen the impact that he's had on other coaches. If you listen to the recent Ross Jeffs episode, you can see that um, some elements of that neurotyping system that really fit with some of those sprint types, that concentric type, that eccentric or the elastic type, excuse me, and the metabolic type. And you can, the more you look at all this, the more you just get a better picture of athletics and athleticism as a whole. Christian, along with his creation of the neurotyping system and being such a wealth of knowledge there, has been working with athletes for the last 18 years, has worked from uh, athletes of 28 different sports. He's a prolific writer and presenter, and I'm really excited to have him on today. Uh, quickly before we start, we will get into this. If you haven't, um, if you're not familiar with the neurotyping system, uh, check out episode 77 of the show. It's our most popular episode hugely interested tons of those mind-blown moments and i first heard that on robbie burke's podcast that was floored and we got christian on the show and it's just been it's been such a learning experience from there and so the neurotyping system quickly i'll, I'll just give you a really quick overview and christian's going to give you a very uh, neurotransmitter and personality profile oriented recap as well within the show but there's five types there's the 1a 1b 2a 2b and type 3 um, there's a neurologic there's a spectrum of intensity if you will the, the 1A being defined by intensity and raw power. Uh, think of Ben Johnson, uh, must like a ball of fast switch muscle, an intense individual. Uh, then you have the 1B, that, that 1A2 being the more um, fitting almost made with the concentric sprinter type for Ross Jeffs, uh, as Ross Jeffs puts it. The 1B being more elastic, that kangaroo type. You might think of a Carl Lewis if Ben Johnson versus Carl Lewis and how they respond to training. The, the, and the 1B needing to be explosive to be strong and uh, explosive being a key thing for them. The 2A is an uh, athlete who can handle a lot of training. They are more uh, variety driven, need more variety and novelty. And when you get in the type 2s where the type 1s are more intense, uh, the type 2s are a little bit more uh, team oriented and affirmation oriented. So type 2A can handle lots of training volume, likes a lot of variety, likes a lot of variety within the training session itself. Type 2B, uh, keyword being sensation, 
They are very good at mind-muscle connections. Uh, they are a little bit more sensitive of the types or the emotionally sensitive. And they have, um, they, you could describe them as needing to, uh, from a bodybuilding perspective, needing to get big to be strong, like a muscle first, almost, if you will, in terms of strength, uh, looking at how they respond. And, and Christian went in depth on uh, looking at those athletes in terms of non-strength sports and in a recent episodes that we've done together. Finally, type three being more of the, uh, almost just the distance runner, if you will, uh, the uh, serotonin seeking individual who may be a little higher anxiety and really likes things in a very structure based format. So structure being a key word for them, them having like more precision laid out with tempos and explanation of training itself and not having necessarily the strongest nervous system. So those are the five types. Again, Krishna will get into them much more detail from a neurological uh, approach, but I just wanted to give a quick summary before we started that. So, so that being said, and, and, you know, just, just in case you hadn't listened to the show, I, I think it's just useful information. And so on the show today, we, we've done some, uh, we've done three episodes so far. And so we've, we've done a summary of the neurotyping. We've talked about it in context of training athletes in, in French contrasts and complex training. We've got into peaking and how to optimally peak versus athletes who might be more likely to choke and lots of other things on the show today. We're going to get in depth into elements of adrenaline. And looking at adrenaline in regards to overtraining and what you're going to see out of athletes as they go through the training process, uh, very specifically ideas on muscle tone and what that means for things like nutrition, uh, loading and deloading, training splits. Uh, you, when you go through this show, you're really, uh, I, at least for me, I cannot look at athletes. Um, in, I, I just have such a new layer of awareness by which to look at athletes. And there was a lot of aha moments, uh, things that I think you've probably seen with muscle tone. But this show really connects the dots, and Christian does a brilliant job of going in-depth on, uh, neuro, on neurotransmitters and brain science and hor our hormones and connecting it all together in a way that helps us to understand training and training splits better. This show really helped uh, put together some more answers for my questions of athletes who do well on the high-low split, so training hard every other day versus uh, stringing more multiple days of high intensity together. So a huge question answered there. We're going to get into a lot of great stuff. Um, before we start, too, just a quick note. The audio on this show was a little spotty sometimes. Christian was recording from his basement, so his mic goes a little spotty for a very small portion of the show. So please just bear with that. This was a fantastic show. I know you guys are going to love it. So let's get on to it. Episode 208 with Christian Thibodeau. Christian, it's awesome to have you back. I know last time we were talking a lot about child development and development ages zero to two. And I know your child is, is getting older. Uh, how has your child growing impacted your thoughts and ideas uh, with with child development and and how they're coming along? Well, it just confirms what I was saying at first. Uh, any type of blue light or screen time is the number one enemy to children development. And what I mentioned is that uh, what people don't understand is that these stimulus, like your, your tablet, your cell phone, the smartphone, uh, big screen TV, all those types of devices emit blue light which is one of the strongest dopamine receptor stimulator. It's so strong, in fact, that in, even in adult, it can desensitize those receptors very easily. That's why it's so addictive, because when you stop doing it, you feel like crap, you feel depressed, because you don't have the dopamine stimulation, the pleasure neurotransmitter that is strong enough to compensate for that going on. And now, the problem is that a, a child's brain is not fully developed and much more fragile. And the stimulus is just way too strong for their brain to handle. You can actually permanently uh, damage 
the dopamine receptor sensitivity. An adult, if he becomes desensitized, you can do what, what's called a, a dopamine fast. Like you stop basically any type of dopaminergic stimulation, like you cut off all, cut off all phones, uh, TV, stuff like that. Uh, you stop smoking, you don't take drugs that stimulate dopamine. And within 10 days, you can basically regain your sensitivity. But a child, if it's permanently damaged, you're going to have a child with low motivation, uh, prone to depression, prone to anxiety, and it's not something you want. Also, there's a very strong connection between the efficacy of the dopamine system and learning, especially motor learning. The reason is that children learn by reward system. So for example, your, your child is on the floor on his belly, he doesn't crawl yet, you see a cube on the floor that he wants to reach and he will find a way to reach it and when you reach it, the dopaminergic response gives him a big pleasure response and that will motivate him to try again, to learn new stuff. So learning, uh, especially motor learning is driven by the motivation to get that dopaminergic uh, response. So if you desensitize the dopaminergic receptors, motor learning and learning period will be impaired. Uh, like Jaden, when he was uh, like, he, he's like 21 months old now or something like that. Uh, when he was 18, he already knew all of his alphabet. So he knew all the letters uh, and he could actually spell his name at 18 months. So that, that's pretty good. Uh, he, he knew something like um, 125 words. And normally at 18, when we went to the doctor, they said that normally a child should learn at least three words by the time he's 18 months old. They actually wanted, when we went to the doctor for our 18 month checkup, they wanted to do a, a TV show with us because his level of, of development is just like crazy. But that's when the, the, the COVID crisis happened. So we didn't do it uh, again. I'm not saying that I'm smarter or Jaden is exceptional. It's just that the, the, the lower dopaminergic overstimulation and the fact that both my wife and I are mostly at home so we can actually plan learning experiences sped up his development. Now that led to some issues that we might need to resolve is that by over stimulating him, we be basically became the only source of his development and he is slightly lacking in social comfort. Like when he's around other people, it, it will just basically freeze and it will take him about two or three minutes of analyzing the situation to be somewhat comfortable. Then again, I'm like that. So, I mean, that might be genetic. That might not be my, my teaching thing. But yeah, that's uh, always learning, always trying to do better things. Uh, but I think that the big, biggest thing is still like diminish uh, like blue screen exposure as much as possible. And, and a parent is a coach. That's the, you're not the, you're not the child best friend. You're not is, uh, is boss. You're a coach. You should approach it like a coach. You should plan experiences so that the child can learn and try different things. So that's the main thing. And then of course, what I'm doing different now is that we are at, a, at an age where he needs to become more, uh, more autonomous, more doing things by himself. So now we find that he really loves tractors. So we can actually play with his tractors in the sand for like eight hours straight. So that allows me to do a lot more job, a lot more work. But uh, that's the next step. At first, 
as a coach, you, you give him as many different experiences to develop his motor skills, his observational skills, uh, his memory, stuff like that, uh, his coordination. And the more and more he advances, he, he needs to be able to do his own stuff, select the, the activities he wants to do and create his own game. So that's pretty much what we're doing right now. Yeah, the, the create your own games thing, I've, I really enjoy watching my children. That's almost the thing I like the most is when they take something and they make their own rules of it or they put yeah. their own personal spin on. Like it's like basketball. They like my daughter will find a new way to play it. She'll take a little mini laundry basket and just find a new way to set it up. And I'm like, this is as much yeah. a part of it as the actual skill of shooting a ball in a hoop. It's just so much fun to watch them learn and and um, create Creativity their own rules. Is the number one. Creativity is, I think I mentioned this in the last podcast. I mean, what we call natural talent. It has two main components, which we call natural talent. The first component is motor skills. Uh, so it, it comes both from uh, an effective visual system, proprioceptive system, and, of course, vestibular system. And then accumulating a large baggage of motor skills. So that's the first step in having what we call natural talent, being able to control your body very precisely and very accurately and being able to adjust yourself to your surroundings, to different situations. The second part of what we call natural talent is creativity. The, 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 what the athlete that we say are, that guy is just gifted. Well, being gifted is that they can do things that most people don't, not because they're necessarily move better, but because they can actually come up with those situ those solutions, those those motors, those those um, in-game decisions. So the more creative you are, the more likely you are to be successful at a high level sport. So you're going to, in every sport, of course, team sports will be more influenced by creativity if you're uh, 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 like a, a dart thrower, you don't need that much creativity, right? But if you play uh, team sports where you have to actually play against opponents and play alongside your partners, then you need creativity to be at the top. Now, you will always have what I call grinders. Grinders are those who have great motor skills, great motivation. So that's like half the puzzle of what we call natural talent. But they lack the creativity that the truly exceptional athletes have. So they will be great at following a system. They will be great supporting players, but they will never become the stars because the stars are those who have that little extra something, and that comes from creativity. Actually, that, that brings me to a, a question I had is because I've thought about this and that I I've been more and more, the more coaches who are really just on kind of that, that edge of the field of, of really putting creativity as a premium, I think about, well, an athlete, say an athlete's 16 or 17 or, or 20, and they're, they've come up as the grinder, like you said, like that's yeah. been their MO. Like as, at that point, obviously younger, at the younger age, that's easier to change or, or, you know, fostering that creativity, but everything before age two or age seven. But what's your take on once an someone's kind of reached some more development. I mean, obviously it's harder, but what, do you have any thoughts on once you're a little bit later in life? You always be at a disadvantage. I'd like to tell you that I have a magical, like a magic secret that can actually turn a grinder into a, like that top of the, 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 the echelon elite creative player. But it would be like saying, you know, I will turn you into a, a, a piano virtuoso in, in, if you're starting at 30. 
I mean, you can become great. You can become a great player at executing what you're seeing, but you will never be as good or as fluid as someone who started at six, okay? Because acquiring a skill or, or a certain trait is much easier and more permanent when you're younger because that's when the brain is developing. Now, creativity, if you look at the element that, that lead to creativity, you will see that uh, it has a lot to do with the capacity to acquire new knowledge, the capacity to take that knowledge from its storing space and then take it out, mobilizing it and putting many different stored ideas and creating a new one. So that there's a neurological part to that, and that, that's driven by acetylcholine. So naturally, people with higher acetylcholine level will be at an advantage when it comes to being creative. And that's one of the main traits of high acetylcholine levels. People will be more creative, not only because they, they have that capacity to store more information and retrieve it when needed, but actually they will have more desire to accumulate the information because that's what creativity is about. First, you need to have the, the mechanics to be able to store that information and retrieve it fast. That's an acetylcholine thing. But you also need to have the desire to, to, to acquire that knowledge. And then you also need to not be afraid to fail. These are the three main traits of someone who is creative. First, you need to have the capacity to store and retrieve information. That's mostly a neurological thing that can be improved slightly with nutrition and maybe supplementation. But if you have low acetylcholine to start with, it will always be hard to bring it at a very, very high level. You can bring it to an average level, but not to the elite level. The second trait of people with high creativity is people have a burning desire to try new things, okay? So people who are set in their ways, they always want to do the same activity, they, they will never become creative. And that's part of you. So you can, okay, I'm a grinder, I always do things a certain way, and that's part of me. Well, if you want to be creative, you actually need a different personality. You need that burning desire. I want to experience anything everything that's what will make you creative because you need to acquire that knowledge to be able to create new ideas in your brain that don't exist and just make it happen and the third trait is you cannot be afraid of failure or looking foolish because it's one thing to have like take plenty like five different ideas stored in your brain and putting them together to create a new idea which is the first step in being creative it's a different thing to, you know what, I'm going to apply it. Because most people, many people have great ideas, but they never try to apply them because they're afraid of looking foolish. They're afraid of being judged. They're afraid of failing. People who are creative, they don't care. They, they will try anything. And if they fail, they don't feel bad. Even you can actually see that early in childhood. Like you have the kid who will try something new. He will fail. He'll never do it again. That person will not be creative unless there's some intervention right away. But if you take, you talk, you're talking about an adult who is like that, it's impossible to change that. It, it, you can actually like, give him strategies to try to reprogram himself, but it will never change his nature. It's more like learned behavior, and that will not make you more creative. It has to be part of you. So that's why it's very hard to become more creative when you're dealing with an older individual, because you cannot really affect that burning desire to learn and experience everything.
And also that fear of looking foolish, of being judged or, or, or failing, that also that can be improved slightly, but it's still part of you. The only thing that we can actually improve would be the accumulation of knowledge thing. So the, the only thing we can do with someone who's older and to try to get them more creative is to dramatically diversify their portfolio of physical, mental, artistic experiences. Like have them do as many different things as possible, even if it's outside the realm of their sport. And then there are some like dietary intervention that could increase acetylcholine, which will give you better mechanics in your brain to store and retrieve information. Also speeding up your brain's capacity to make connections. So, so that could help a, lot, a little bit. Uh, but some people, uh, when you, we might talk about neurotyping again, some people will be born with genetic traits that will make it hard to have high acetylcholine level. We can work on that to make it a little bit better, but it, it's still going to be harder. Yeah, definitely. I, I really enjoy Like I've been thinking about this a lot. I was just on a podcast as a guest with um, Austin Joshim, and he was talking about with his athletes, instead of praising, because we, we look at what, what do we praise? We praise, you know, you set a PR in, in a sprint or a jump or a lift, and that's great. Or, you know, you hit X out of so many shots. But how often do we praise creativity? And But as you were saying, I think that the older the athlete gets, I mean, it's still important to do, I think, no matter probably what the age, but mm -hmm. there is more rigidity as you get older. And, yeah. and it yeah. does make me think when, you know, if I have an athlete like that, like I, I, with me, a tennis player comes to mind where we would oftentimes do warm uh, warm-ups where I would just have the athletes like try to mirror each other and juke each other out as, as a very general mm -hmm. thing as part of the warm-ups. And this one guy had no moves like literally it was either left or right he couldn't <laughs> he just couldn't like come up with the yeah. and the coaches would say the same player on the court is very the same way very robotic and it makes you think you know you can what do i have to do to this athlete or how do i have to approach this athlete to at least get some more creativity out of them and but like you had just gone uh, uh you had just talked about there's probably some very deep-seated things and experiences that he's had as well as just the raw personality type that all play into this and so I feel like the more we can know about it, um, the mm -hmm. better. And it just, it also makes me think about, like you said, with your children, I think about what do I praise my children for? I, I've been at the, the park or the, the, the top playground where there's a little, little hoop and like uh, another child will shoot a basket and the, the dad, it goes in and the dad's like, yeah, I mean, and that's good. But at the same time, it's like, well, is that all we're praising? What about if, you know, if you fail, what happens? Or, you know, I, mm -hmm. I feel like praising our children for creating things and being creative and, just like being very well-rounded in where our praise comes and not just necessarily, did you fail? Did you pass at this task that is emotionally you know, meaningful to me? And That's a very good point. And words have power. Okay. And I think that uh, first parents for a good generation uh, are, are praising children way too much and not praising using the right words. They, for example, they will say, oh, you're so great, you're awesome, you're, that was amazing when we need fill a basket up, for example, or something like that. Instead of saying something like, you know, you really work hard to make that shot, you really, so it, it, praise work, praise the effort, but don't praise the result. Because if you say, you're so good, you're awesome, then the child will grow up thinking he's, he's great, he's awesome. He, he will never like, learn the value of work because you know what, I, I'm, I'm good. So, so it, it, 
doesn't even realize it, but you're just programming him to think, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. So if, the more he hears that, the more he hears that, even when he fails, okay, the, the parent, wow, you're, you're still awesome. Now the children will have no incentive to work because the, 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 the parent has not ingrained the value of being rewarded for work and effort. So I have no problem with, with parents praising their children. But praise using the right words. Yeah, but my, my kid is only one. He doesn't understand the words. He understands more than you think. And even if he doesn't understand the words yet, it will still make, leave an imprint in their brain. And once they understand the words later on, it might still resonate with them. So you want to use the proper word. Never like you're good or you're great, you're awesome. So you, you, you're really a hard worker, but you, your effort is so great. I mean, you make me proud because you try so hard. So, so that's what you need to reinforce when the kid is growing up. I mean, it's, it's amazing that you're trying all these new things. I mean, I really love that you try to shoot that basket a different way. That's what you need to reinforce if you want the, the child to develop the desire to experiment new, thing, experiment new things. Uh, same thing when he fails. Maybe you're a coach. So what would you do if one of your athletes fails at a drill? You might come up with uh, 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 another drill to help him learn the one he failed. But it's still the athlete who needs to do the drill. I see too many parents when they're a kid, for example, they're trying to, to like climb up on the couch. He fails and falls. The parent will, from that point on, will always bring the kid up on the couch. The kid never learns to go up by himself. You know, you know, I fail. If I fail, my parent will do it for me. No, no. You can help him up as little as possible. He still needs to understand that he needs to do it. But you are supporting him. You are creating drills or educational drills or uh, giving advice to allow him to do it by himself. You are a coach. You're not the best friend. You're not there to make sure he doesn't get hurt or anything. You're there for him to learn to, or her to become a, a, a fully functional person with high creativity, high coordination. So they need to learn to do it by themselves. You need to be a coach. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to share with you a little bit about what our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, now has available in their store. You hear me mention in the outro of the show all the time about the free lap timing system in the K-Box, which I have and use regularly. But today I wanted to share a little bit more about the bar speed monitoring units that Simply Faster has, which is the GymWare and the new portable flex unit. So let me start with the GymWare. I mention it regularly on the show. It's been referred to as the Cadillac of bar speed monitors. Carl Valley calls it a lab inside a lunchbox, as the readings you get out of the gym work go well beyond typical concentric or just up the up phase of the lift velocities. Rather, you can measure the entire shape of the barbell lift in terms of eccentric velocity, range of motion, and total work done. Total work being awesome, by the way, especially like comparing a long-armed bench presser or a 6'10 squatter versus a 5'11 point guard. So you're getting all these extra metrics that you're not getting on other units. It's perfect for teams wanting to manage the weight room and the data synchronizes to software platforms such as CoachMe Plus, Team Builder, and Athlete Monitoring. So new to the store 
is the Flex, which is the ultra-portable and lower-price travel version of the coach's favorite gym wear. So just like the gym wear, the Flex measures the shape of each rep, range of motion, total work done, eccentric dynamics. So for this and the gym wear, this is the advantage that a force plate would have over just knowing how high you jumped. You're getting many other metrics and information that go into this unit of work. Compared to similar portable bar speed monitors, this unit gets the entire rep rather than a fraction. So you have here two awesome tools. And if you're interested in upping your game in the velocity-based training and bar speed world, I would definitely recommend heading to the store at simplyfaster.com and checking into these two units. All right, let's get back to the show. No, I, I totally agree. And I, I could talk about this stuff for literally a, a whole podcast. I know I, I had. And the dopamine thing you said before recently, the dopamine reset, I, I, I want to get to all that stuff. But, but I, I really, I do, I know a lot of people listening to this don't have children. And, you know, it, sometimes I think it's hard to see that link. But I just love how looking at child development and toddlerhood and everything that happens to you before age seven or 10, like it, it, it resonates. And it, it, you know, when we see athletes later in life, I think it's important to be able to go back and say, okay, like let's, I can see who you are through multiple shades and, and, or at least know maybe what questions to ask or which ways to frame it rather than if the less understanding you have, I think it, it make, can make things a little bit harder later to understand where someone's coming from. Absolutely. So, yeah. uh, so the, I wanted to get into uh, some more neurotyping ideas and this time specifically uh, with a little bit of I, and I was actually just we were mentioning before the show like I was just going back to your uh, your neurotyping course notes and and looking at some things and I was looking at some of the athletic performance notes specifically and so I want to get into that but before we do um, would you mind just kind of giving us a little bit of a rehash of the neurotyping system and then some of the updates and new ideas you've had uh, since we last spoke yeah, yeah, well, basically the neurotyping system uh, it is not unlike uh, some of the tests being done uh, by uh, human resources when they're hiring uh, personnel, stuff like that. They, they do psychological profiling tests to know if you have the right uh, personality for a certain job because every single job has an ideal profile. Uh, I know this because that's what my father does or did for a living. He had one of the biggest uh, HR cabinet in Quebec, and I worked for him for two years. Uh, and there's a, a specific profile that is optimal for every type of, of jobs or occupation. Now, I took that concept and applied it to training, nutrition, interaction with the athlete. But instead of just looking at it from a psychological perspective, because I feel that psychology, even though it's super helpful, uh, it is somewhat limited because more often than not, they ignore the underlying cause of the traits they are studying. Uh, like it's one thing to say, you know what, you are uh, someone with uh, you are a very agreeable person, so you are a yes man, you're a people pleaser. Well, so you're gonna just take that information and you're gonna interact with that person to make them more assertive, for example. But if you don't understand why they are too agreeable, then it's very hard to calibrate your intervention because in most psychologists believe that those traits are mostly due to socialization, the way people were brought up. And there's a part of that. But there's a huge part that comes from genetic programming. So the neurotransmitters you have in your brain. So the, 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 the chemicals that 
creates brain function. And each of these neurotransmitter systems, they all have different effects on mood, on behavior, on uh, bodily functions even. So if someone has different level of these neurotransmitters naturally, either because of nutrition, stress, or because of genetic markers, then they are born or they are already programmed to be a certain way. But from that starting point, Certainly experiences can change the way they are, but they will always have those boundaries from within they can evolve. If I'm, if I'm someone who's born, neurologically speaking, to be very disagreeable and have low empathy, even with all the psychological interventions or consultation I, I can have, I will never become a very agreeable, very empathetic person. I can learn to pretend to be, but it will not change my, my uh, root programming. So the, the neurotyping system, what it does is it looks at someone's personality. And from that point, it uh, makes uh, an evaluation of what the brain chemistry looks like. So we need to uh, we learn how to work with. How does that relate to training? Well, th those neurotransmitters not only have a role to play in behavior and personality, they also have a huge impact uh, on how people deal with stress, different stress, and what is their main motivation, what, what is their tolerance for certain types of work. So we know that if someone, for example, uh, is very poor at breaking down adrenaline once it's released, well, these people will be at a very high risk of what we often call CNS fatigue if they overproduce adrenaline by using uh, a, a too large training stimulus. Uh, some people will break down adrenaline super fast. And if they break down adrenaline super fast, it means they can tolerate a lot more training stimulus. So that's why some people can tolerate naturally a boatload of volume and even a combination of high volume, high intensity, which is rare, while some people will overtrain if they do more than 12 sets per workout or nine sets per workout. And it has to do with the adrenergic system sensitivity. And that comes from programming. What kind of COMT enzyme you have? Like you have the, uh, this is the enzyme that breaks down adrenaline. Uh, and if you, you have two types of COMT, you have fast and slow. The, fat, the one that is fast, will break down adrenaline very rapidly once it's released. That will keep the receptors fresh. Because if, even if I produce a boatload of adrenaline because I have a, a super high training volume, super high training load, as soon as the workout is over, I can break down adrenaline, diminishing dramatically the, 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 the possibility of overstimulating the receptors causing CNS fatigue. On the other end, if I have someone with a slow variation of the comp enzyme, when they release adrenaline, <coughs> it stays high forever. So these people, you give them the same training load, they will desensitize their receptors very, very quickly, leading to those symptoms of like drop performance, drop motivation, or coordination, stuff like that. So that that's what the system is and also there's uh, the proper dietary intervention depending on the type so it, it, i originally created five neurotypes type 1a type 1b type 2a type 2b type 3 uh, and then i i recently created two subtypes for the 2a and two subtypes for the 2b i don't want to get 
too far into those subtypes yeah, because that would require like five more hours. I don't want to get people confused. Uh, but basically, if you look at uh, each neurotransmitter, look at the 1A, I call the 1A the warrior. The warrior, he has very low, uh, he's very disagreeable. Okay, so he, he doesn't like want to please people, doesn't care what other people think about him. They, 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 they don't adjust well to other people. They have very low level of adjustability. They are very aggressive, very competitive, very result oriented. Uh, so that's the basic personality. Uh, now, if you look at them from a neurological perspective, the main markers I'm looking at they normally have very poor methylation. Poor methylation uh, can develop uh, as you're growing up, but it can also be genetic. So poor methylation will lead to low serotonin, will lead to low acetylcholine, and will also make it harder for you to clear out adrenaline. So the first thing we know about the 1A is they have low serotonin, uh, which means they don't adapt very well to changing situation situations they don't modulate their behavior well to different type of personality so basically they, they don't change who they are they are uh, like the elephant in the porcelain store they will not change or adapt based on the situation on the person they're with uh, they also have low acetylcholine meaning that they are normally less creative they don't normally have less motor skill as athletes they can be really really good because they are aggressive competitive driven result oriented they will do anything to win but they normally use brute force or even psychological mind games to get there now uh, the uh, second marker we're going to look at is the COMT enzyme type. They have a slow COMT. So the type 1A will have high adrenaline pretty much all the time. That's why, that's the reason why they are so disagreeable, so aggressive, so competitive. Uh, that's what adrenaline does. It's a survival fight or flight neuro, uh, neurotransmitter. And finally, they have a, a very effective uh, glutamate decarboxylase enzyme, meaning that they can convert glutamate into GABA very, very efficiently. So if we look at the neurotransmitter, they, they, are, they have high dopamine, they have high adrenaline, they have low acetylcholine, they have low glutamate. So if you look at that, that means they're aggressive, they are competitive, they are impatient, uh, they are disagreeable, and they have zero empathy. The fact that they have low serotonin and low acetylcholine, the two neurotransmitters that allow you to adapt to varying situation, meaning that they, they cannot adapt their personality. They basically always are the same, on or off switch. But because they have very efficient glutamate decarboxylase enzyme, they have very high GABA, which means that they can actually deal pretty well with stress. Even though they have high adrenaline and they will be aggressive, even though they have low serotonin, because GABA is so high, they can actually recover pretty well from intense situation. They just don't tolerate lots of volume because they will uh, overproduce adrenaline and they can clear it out. Now, that is, and I'm going to like switch to a different neurotype, the complete opposite of the spectrum, the type 3. The type 3 is your typical introvert, okay? But... In reality, is very, very similar to the 1A from a genetic perspective. Both have poor methylation, so low serotonin, low acetylcholine. Both have slow comp, so they, they don't clear out adrenaline fast. Uh, so you look at the type, and the type 3, they also have high adrenaline. 
they have fairly high dopamine, they have low serotonin, low acetylcholine, so they don't adapt well. Uh, they are more routine-based, they don't need as much variation. They are also result-driven. The main difference is that the type 3 has poor glutamate to GABA conversion. So they have high glutamate, meaning that they can actually care about other, care about other things. They have a bit more empathy. But the problem is they have low serotonin and low GABA, the two neurotransmitters responsible for allowing you to deal with stress. So you have type 3 who is high adrenaline all the time, but low GABA, low serotonin. That's why they have problems switching their brain off. They're always thinking, always thinking. That can lead to anxiety. That can lead to problems sleeping. They're overanalyzing everything because they just can't shut their brain down because they are not equipped to do that. So really, the type 1 and type 3 are very similar. I, I often have... Clients who test very high on 1A and type 3 because from a brain chemical perspective, they are similar. The main reason, the main difference is that the type 1A uses brain overactivity or overactivation externally. They, they use that inner stress to control and dominate others because they have the GABA to feel confident because they can actually control the stress. Whereas the type 3, they internalize everything and they, they have a very large so they try to control themselves. The 1A try to control others. The type 2 try to control himself or the situation. So that, that is the main difference. But in both cases, they both require a fairly high amount of carbohydrates to control adrenaline. More on that later. Then we move on to the type 1B, who is a better natural athlete because he, uh, he has very high methylation rate. Very high methylation leads to high serotonin and acetylcholine. Both of the neurotransmitters responsible for being able to adapt to any situation, okay? And also serotonin, high serotonin allows them to always be at the proper neurological level, to not choke on pressure, but not to be unactivated either. Now, they also have acetylcholine, meaning that they can be creative, they can learn new stuff very easily, motor learning or just knowledge in general, and they can retrieve it very easily to create solutions. Uh, and they have that desire to experiment new things. They also have a very fast COMT enzyme, meaning that they can clear adrenaline very fast and they also clear dopamine very fast. And if you clear those two neurotransmitters fast, it means those receptors stay fresh. The 1A is dopamine dominant because he always has high dopamine and high adrenaline. The 1B is dopamine dominant because the dopamine and adrenaline receptors are super sensitive. That's why a type 1A, a 1B, think like uh, uh, Usain Bolt. Think of any star football player, star basketball player. They almost look like they don't care when they're not playing, but they will always be the best player when the game's on the line. Because as long, just like the 2A, two, the two if adrenaline is not up, they will be lazy. That The 2A and the 1B are actually very similar, minus some small differences. So that would be the type 1B. He is the person who has, he's also goal-driven. He's result-oriented. He's very confident. Uh, he's super competitive. But he's only aggressive when under high adrenaline, and he is not under high adrenaline often. So that the, the 1A, once he releases adrenaline, it stays up all day. 
So he just can't shut down. He's always aggressive, always in a bad mood or competitive mood. The 1B will be super chill until it counts. So that's the ideal brain setup for most sports, at least most uh, speed and power sports. Uh, and he's very adaptable because of high acetylcholine and high serotonin. Then you move on to the 2A. The 2A is very similar to the 1B if he is optimized. He is average in methylation. Uh, he has fast COMT, so he's very sensitive to adrenaline. That's why the, the type 2A can change his personality very easily. The main difference between the 2A and the 1B is found in serotonin level. The type uh, and glutamate level. The type 2A has more glutamate, more serotonin in the 1B, making them more self-conscious, making them uh, a, a bit less capable of dealing with stress. So a high glutamate and, lo and lower serotonin basically leads to quote-unquote social anxiety or at the very least the need to not look ridiculous in front of others. So the 1B doesn't care if he fails, he'll just try again. The 2A looking foolish is destructive for him because what others think of him is super important. And that also comes with the self-esteem issue. 1B, high self-esteem. 2A, low self-esteem because of his neurological profile. Lower self-esteem means you need other to like you, respect you, or admire you. So if you look at those first three profiles, the 1A, 1B will be more driven by uh, the accomplishment of a goal winning uh, just for its own sake. Or if you want to call it that, motivation. Okay, just I'm going to backtrack here. I'm all over the place. Sorry about that. I at least want to get some nuggets that people can actually take home and use, not just me blabbering for, for an hour. Okay, motive, there, there are three main sources of motivation. The first one is pleasure. And I'm not talking about, oh, this was fun. I'm talking about a pleasure response in your brain, stimulating the dopamine receptors. That's the first source of motivation. So you, if you win, you get a dopamine stimulus, you want to do it again. So when things are tough, when I'm playing, if I have a strong response to dopamine, I will keep pushing because the, 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 the reward at the end of pleasure response is worth my effort. If I have a low response to dopamine, my pleasure response is low. Okay, when things get tough, I might not want to keep pushing. So that's the first source of motivation, seeking pleasure or pleasure response in your brain. Second source of motivation, respect, admiration of others. Uh, so that actually is what we often call an external factor, but there is no such thing as external factors. What really is happening is if someone has a naturally lower dopamine response, so you have less of a pleasure response from achieving a certain thing. Well, that's where external factors come into play. The external factors themselves are not motivation. However, they can increase the importance of the pleasure response. For, let's take me, for example. I'm a 2A. I'm driven more by the need to be respected, admired by others. If I'm squatting, and for example, let's say I have 500 on the bar. I haven't done that in five years. If I'm in a basement, you know what? I might not try it because so what if I make it? But if I'm training in a commercial gym, there are lots of bros there or good-looking girls. 
Well, you know what? Being respected by the guys and admired by the girls, even though in reality nobody cares about what you're lifting. But in my brain, being admired by these people increased the potential pleasure response. See what I mean? So, so that's where external factors come into play. Me, I have lower self-esteem, lower dopamine response. But those external factors being admired by others increase the potential pleasure response for achieving a goal. That's why I, I still say that like the need for recognition is a source of motivation, even though it only increases the, the, the pleasure response. And the third main motivation is the, the search for safety. So some people will put being safe above anything else, the type three, for example, the type two Bs. So being safe will be your main source of motivation. For example, when you understand that, it allows you to understand how somebody works. So for the two A, main source of motivation is gaining the respect and admiration of others. They are people pleaser. They are very adaptable, very agreeable people. They, can, they, they want everybody to like them. Basically, they jack of all trades. They can create personas at will. Uh, sometimes they will even look soft because it looks like they will bend to anybody and they will change their opinion uh, to whatever is needed at the time. So that can actually be annoying sometimes. The type 2B, type 2B is very, very high in glutamate. That's their main thing. Glutamate is the neurotransmitter responsible for the intense, uh, intensity of emotions. It's an emotional amplifier. If you look at the literature, it is one of its main function is to improve or increase memory storage. Okay, uh, but in reality, it, it increases memory storage mostly by being an emotional amplifier. Let me explain. Your memory is selective. Okay, you you, you don't store everything that happens to you at the same level of importance in your brain. For it. If you did, then your brain would just blow up after a day because now I, I, I store in my memory that I am looking at my screen while talking to you. And I'm storing in my memory that I'm telling you I'm looking at my screen. See how much information that would, that would be just crazy. So the brain decides which information it doesn't store at all, which information will be stored but occupy a very small place in your brain, which one will take a moderate place, which one will take a very large place. And one of the main thing that quote unquote tells your brain which information will have the biggest place in your brain is the emotional intensity you are under when something happens to you. The bigger the emotional spike is when something happens to you, the more your brain thinks, oh, this is important. I need to keep that stored like in a, in a precious place. So the higher your emotions are when something happens to you, the more likely you are to store that memory properly. So that's why people who have a higher emotional response will have a better memory. That's why glutamate helps with memory by amplifying emotions. So that's why the type 2Bs, they will be the most emotional people. They will care for others. They will have big mood swings. They can be also a, a lot more affected by failure than others. They will take things more personally, but they will have a lot of empathy, for example. So that's a, a type of personality. And finally, the type three that I already covered. 
Now they are more introverted. The reason why they are introverted is a protective mechanism. They don't have a high level of the two neurotransmitter responsible for bringing their brain down. And they always have high adrenaline. So their brain is always firing on all cylinders one step away from anxiety because anxiety is nothing more than your brain firing too fast for you to control it. That's why the type three are all about self-control and controlling their surroundings, controlling the situation they put themselves in because they need to control these variables because the slightest element could actually tip them toward that anxiety state, anxious state. So they don't want to go there. That's why they are introverted because if I stay within myself and I don't, if I don't interact too much with others, I minimize my risk of having that little stressor that will put me over the edge. It's a protective mechanism. That's also why they are routine based. Because if I have a, on a sheet of paper, <coughs> a plan for my next 12 week of training that is planned in a, the smallest possible details, it's, it's, it's secure for me. It feels safe. It, it, in my mind, I take out all these variables that might tip me over to the anxious state. That's also why they like to do the same thing over and over and over again, because they know, you know what, I've done this a million times, nothing ever bad happened. So what if this second option might be better? I don't know what could go wrong. These are all strategies that minimize the risk of having that uh, little stressor that, that puts them over the edge. So these are the, main, the five main types of, of the neurotyping system. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned um, the COMT or the COMT. I, I had been getting into a little bit of research with that and, and its effect on dopamine. And I had never heard it linked to yeah. uh, the work capacity element and you were talking mm -hmm. specifically between that 1A, that, in, that intensity-driven athlete and that, or, or more muscle intensity-driven and the, the 1B, which is the more elastic. And I've been having some conversations recently with, uh, well, there was a, a previous podcast guest, Randy Huntington, who's just a legendary track and field coach who had mentioned with his, uh, when his athletes come to him, he made the comment, I, I look at, uh, I think what he said was, I look at what kind of muscle tissue this athlete has, and then I can determine mm -hmm. their training split. And to him, mm -hmm. I think what he was getting as the more muscle-driven, like the 1A sprinter jumpers, he put them on a three-day-a-week split, like a high-low Charlie Francis, like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then one day, very recovery, versus the, the I believe, the more elastic athletes could go um, like a Monday, Tuesday, maybe you do strength and then plyos or something yeah. split, and then take a break, and then do another strength plyo split in the week, and then... And he, so actually found, he actually found something that is actually true. He probably doesn't know why that is i'm going to explain to you why uh and it has it has to do okay it's not a matter of you don't someone doesn't have like elastic soft muscle or somebody doesn't have, doesn't have rock hard muscle right muscle is muscle uh the main difference he's talking about is actually uh, simply muscle tone the, some people will have varying level of muscle tones right some people will have a very high level of muscle tone so the muscle are is hard even at rest some people will have soft or, or smooth muscle. Even if they're super lean, they, they, they still feel soft. Even if there's no fat over the muscle, it feels soft. That's what he's referring to, uh, elastic and, and hard muscle tissue. In reality, it's simply a matter uh, of that muscle tone. And muscle tone is nothing more than a partial state of muscle activation. But here's where it's interesting and where it connects with the neurotyping. The main driver 
of muscle tone is adrenaline. Specifically speaking, the muscle has adrenergic receptors, that the receptors that interact with adrenaline, and when they are triggered, it increases muscle contraction. <clears throat> now, someone with <clears throat> a higher level of adrenaline will have a higher level of muscle tone because the adrenaline makes those muscles harder so that they are more primed for contraction if it's needed. Adrenaline is the fight or flight neurotransmitter. So when, when it's released in the body, it, the goal is to prepare your body to fight or flight. One of the thing is it will increase heart rate. It will increase heart contraction strength. The other thing, it will make the muscles tighter so that they are ready to fire because they are already partially contracted. So it will be much easier to reach maximum contraction, maximum speed. So someone with a higher muscle tone simply has a higher resting level of adrenaline. So someone with a soft muscle tone has a lower baseline of adrenaline. So you can actually tell a lot about someone's neurological state by looking at, at the muscle tissue. So to get back to his model, an athlete who normally like, not just like on an occasion, specific occasion, but he normally has very high level of muscle tone. You look at him and he looks tight. He looks hard as a rock. That person, you know, always has high adrenaline. To me, it means he has very slow comp. So he, he, he doesn't clear, doesn't break down adrenaline fast. That's why his muscle tone is always high because as soon as adrenaline is released a little bit, it stays with him forever, keeping that muscle tight. Now, training increases adrenaline. That person's adrenaline is already high at baseline. If you increase it even more, and since he doesn't clear it fast, while well, he's a lot more likely to desensitize the beta adrenergic receptors, what we call overtraining. Okay, in strength, power, speed sport, nine times out of 10, what we call overtraining is a desensitization of the beta adrenergic receptors. These are the receptors that interact with adrenaline. So when adrenaline binds to those receptors, stuff happens. It, it, the, the receptors in the muscle will make the muscles contract harder, faster. The, the, the receptors in the heart will make the heart beat faster, contract harder to send more blood and oxygen to the muscles. Uh, the receptors in the brain will make your brain fire faster, thinking faster, reacting, analyzing faster, uh, and also being having a higher focus, being more driven, more competitive, okay? So what happens if you stop responding to your own adrenaline? Well, your muscles don't produce as much force or as much speed. Your heart cannot beat as fast. It cannot contract as hard, so you send less blood, less oxygen to the, to the muscles in the brain. And you're not as motivated, driven, or coordinated. So that's what we call overtraining in our sports. And it's because you produce too much adrenaline that you desensitize your receptors. You stop responding to your own adrenaline. So if you have an athlete who has a very high level of baseline adrenaline, he cannot do a lot of training because that will put him over the edge of adrenaline. On the other end, if you have someone with a lower muscle tone, indicating lower baseline of adrenaline, likely fast comp, so they can clear break down adrenaline super fast, they can tolerate more volume, more frequency, because they, can, they, they are not as close to the threshold that will lead to the desensitization. So that's why you, he's absolutely right 
when it comes to the type of the amount of training that those athletes could take. You look at, you mentioned Charlie Francis, Ben Johnson is the perfect example of a type 1A athlete, right? Very, very, very high muscle tone. He's super competitive. That's what Charlie wrote in his book. And when we talked on the phone, he said the same thing. Ben needed to win at everything. So when you have an athlete naturally produces more adrenaline, going to have more muscle tone, he's going to be more, more, more aggressive, more competitive, more driven. That's also why the 1A wants to lift heavy shit all the time. It's not necessarily because he's designed for it all the way he is. It's mostly because that high adrenaline makes you competitive, makes you motivated. You want to beat the workout. You want to beat your partner. Doesn't mean you can do a lot of training. And these athletes are hard to control because they want to win so bad that they want to do more. And they will overtrain because of that. Yeah, if I could... Like kind of, if I could uh, have a one of those mind blown emojis right now, uh, that that hmm. represents where I'm at. Uh, that's awesome because I, it, it's like I've I've seen all those athletes that I've worked with over the years who you know do respond to those. Um, just can't have too much intensity or they blow up or they have to train intensely less often or or they really have to microdose it and they really do have that higher resting muscle tone. Like you always do see that. I've never just. For some reason, I've never really put that together until you just mentioned it. So, uh, uh, even if you work with an athlete who has like a normal muscle tone, you can actually use muscle tone as a, a diagnostic tool for: Do we need to back off? Do we can we push the volume a bit more or the training load a bit more? If an athlete, all of a if an athlete has a normal muscle tone, and all of a sudden he has very a much higher muscle tone with a, a lean athlete okay or a fairly lean athlete he walks into the room and do what did you do you look a lot more jacked okay because you don't necessarily look at uh, your muscle tone is higher but if someone like like within a day or two they look like a lot more jacked that's normally because their resting muscle tone is higher making the muscle look all contracted even at rest so they look harder they look bigger they look more muscular especially if they're lean their range of motion might also be impaired because a tight muscle is harder to move, uh, to stretch. So, so that would be a clear sign that the, their adrenaline level is too high. So I would back off the training volume uh, for that session or maybe, maybe even call it a day. On the other hand, if the athlete has a normal muscle tone and all of a sudden he walks in and his muscle tone is low, two things could have happened. The first thing is maybe they are underloading so they can tolerate a lot more volume okay but in most cases so if you have an athlete who's naturally has a low muscle tone yes they can tolerate volume if someone has a normal muscle tone and all of a sudden their muscles look and feel softer and every athlete who has a good like mind muscle connection has felt that you, you wake up one morning, you look at yourself, you look small, you look soft, you, you, your muscle feels squishy at touch, they're harder to contract. So that's low muscle tone. So in that case, if someone normally has a normal or even a high muscle tone, they wake up one day, boom, muscle tone is gone. It, it's not because they can tolerate more volume, it's because they desensitize their receptors. Okay? The one sign of overtraining in an athlete is suddenly the muscle feels softer. And a lot of people miss that sign because they oh, that's great. You're a lot more flexible. Your muscle tone is lower so we can train more and then you crash, right? 
lower muscle tone is great if that's your natural state. But if you go from normal to high tone to low tone, it means that your receptors are now desensitized. They don't respond to your adrenaline, hence the muscle tone goes down, which is not a good thing if you decide to, oh, you know what? Lower muscle tone, we can do more volume, you're going you're gonna to kill yourself. It's important to understand that. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. So, okay, that's all, I, could you just clarify something? So, if, if I have a normal muscle tone, because I know yeah. we're talking a little bit about adrenaline and overtraining as well. So, could yeah. you just explain the difference in, in regards to adrenaline receptors one more time? If I have a normal yeah. and I'm high versus if I'm normal yeah. and then I walk in and I'm low? Yeah, basically, okay, the higher the muscle tone is, the more stimulated the adrenergic receptors are, or the greater the adrenaline activity in your body, okay? So someone with low muscle tone means that their baseline adrenaline level is low. That's why when you look at an athlete, and we've seen that all the time, right? Let's say, I remember when I was a kid, I would collect football cards. And you look at like a running back running, and the, the arms look fucking shredded, right? Super hard. You look at the same athlete in person during a rest, <clears throat> it looks like they lost all their muscles. Because when they're playing, they're competing, of course, the muscles are in motion. But because of the adrenaline, muscle tone increases, making the muscle look harder. Okay. Anyway, so the adrenaline increases muscle tone. So if you have someone with a high natural muscle tone, so they always look hard, <clears throat> it means that they always have a, a higher than normal adrenaline level, even at rest. So they probably have the slow COMT enzyme. If someone has a low natural muscle tone, it's always low, always softer muscle, then they probably have a lower baseline, well, they, not probably, they have a lower baseline level of adrenaline leading to a lower beta adrenergic receptors activation at the muscle site. And notice how <clears throat> these athletes, those with a lower muscle tone, are often a lot more laid back, harder to motivate, more chill. Whereas those with the higher muscle tone, they are a lot more prime, uh, like bigger mood swing, more aggressive, more jumpy. Because the receptors, uh, adrenergic receptors, you have them in your brain too. So if you have a high baseline of adrenaline, it also triggers those receptors in your brain. Those people will also have a higher heart rate at rest. Those with a lower muscle tone will have a lower heart rate at rest, once again, because it's due to lower adrenaline level. Now, if you have a change, a sudden change in muscle tone, it indicates a change in the adrenergic system. If you go from high muscle tone, which indicates uh, normally you have a high adrenaline level, baseline, you go from a high muscle tone to a low muscle tone, it means all of a sudden that you burn out your receptors. Because we know that from your nature, <clears throat> you always have baseline level of adrenaline. So you always have a high muscle tone. If suddenly that person has a low muscle tone, it's not because your stretching program is awesome. It's because they overstimulated their uh, beta adrenergic receptors. They don't respond to their own adrenaline anymore. So the muscle tone becomes low. Okay. And, and that means that they are on the verge of overtraining or they are overtraining. If on the other end of the spectrum, you have someone who normally has a low muscle tone, all of a sudden they wake up and they have a high muscle tone. That means that their baseline adrenaline increased. So to me, that tells me two things. 
First, either they have a sudden drop in serotonin or GABA. So they can't deal with the stress you're presenting them. That would be the first thing. So too much training stress, when someone has a very low muscle tone, could lead to the high muscle tone. See how, 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 how weird that is? Someone with a high muscle tone, one of the best signs of overtraining is they now have low muscle tone. If you have low muscle tone, one of the best signs you're doing too much is that suddenly you have high muscle tone. So that, that's why you need to understand these, the, how the adrenergic system works. Now, the, the good thing is that when you have someone with low muscle tone, all of a sudden he wakes up, he, have, he has high muscle tone. It's not a problem yet because he still needs to desensitize his receptors to be a problem. But it's certainly a, a sign that you should decrease the training load because something bad will happen. Because the reason why his tone is high is because the neurotransmitter responsible for counterbalancing adrenaline are becoming depleted. So his capacity to adapt and tolerate volume is getting lower and lower and lower by the minute. The second possibility could be a, a, a drop in methylation capacities, which could be nutritional, could be due to stress because excess cortisol will screw up the methylation cycle. In both cases, the root problem is you have too much stress overall, either training stress or, or, or life stress. So the biggest thing is you need to look at changes, sudden changes in muscle tone, not just the muscle tone itself. You need to look at what your baseline is, what your normal is. And when you have a drastic change from that normal, then we might have a problem. That's interesting. So if someone has, uh, is normal and then all of a sudden they have a higher tension, then that one of the things you're saying, you, you need to drop the volume like they're, but yes. if, if they're low tension, what, I mean, what, what is there a different protocol there based on if someone walks in their lower tension, am I, am I looking at that a different way in terms of my intervention? Well, you mean if, if someone has like a, a, a normal tone and all of a sudden they have a low tone? Yeah. Yeah, that, that would indicate that their uh, adrenergic receptors are now desensitized. So you need to resensitize the receptors. And that uh, to, 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 to regain that, you need to do a deload. A deload, is a deload or a peaking. To me, deload and peaking is the same thing. Uh, but with a different goal, but the, uh, the, it's the same thing. So, uh, and here's what you need to understand. When we're talking about speed, strength, and power, even endurance athlete, uh, the main difference is that with endurance athlete, a peaking also uh, includes glycogen loading or fat loading, depending on, on your, your mentality. But um, in, in what you're trying to accomplish is simply reestablishing and maximizing the sensitivity the sensitivity of the adrenergic receptors. The better your receptors respond to adrenaline, the stronger, faster, more motivated you're going to be. That's why if you deload for a week, your performances will go up. It's not because of something magical. It's not because you're circumpensated. There's no such thing as circumpensation except for glycogen stores. You can't circumpensate uh, protein synthesis. I mean, after a training session, protein synthesis will be elevated for 24, 36 hours in the muscle. If you overtrain for two weeks, then deload for one week, you don't have a sudden increase in protein synthesis for that week. Protein synthesis is acute following the session you did. You don't, uh, you don't circumpensate neurotransmitters either. You can recover normal neurotransmitter levels. And that's what's going on. When you're peaking, what you're trying to do is decrease adrenaline as much as possible so that the receptors are not stimulated. <clears throat> this is how receptors work. 
If you overstimulate the receptors, they desensitize. They stop responding. If you stop stimulating them, they become more and more and more and more sensitive. Okay. So what we want during a deload or if you have someone or peaking or someone who has a problem with mus a drop in muscle tone suddenly, you want to minimize adrenaline for seven to 10, day seven to 10 days to reestablish that, that sensitivity. Now, here's the thing and the most important part of uh, this podcast. There's a very strong relationship between cortisol and adrenaline, meaning that cortisol increases adrenaline directly. Cortisol is the main driver of adrenaline production. Okay, what it does, cortisol will increase the conversion of no adrenaline to adrenaline. The more cortisol you release, the more adrenaline you produce. So anything that will lower cortisol will also lower adrenaline. <clears throat> so that's why when we deload, we want to decrease any variable that will increase cortisol. In training, there are six. So I, I don't, I won't go into like too much detail about all the six because that's going to be another hour. But I'm going to briefly talk about them. The first one, the first training variable that will increase cortisol is volume, because one of the main functions of cortisol is mobilizing stored energy and maintaining a stable blood sugar level. So if you do more volume, you need more energy. If you need more energy, you need to mobilize more energy. If you need to mobilize more energy, you produce more cortisol. High volume equals high cortisol. So you can lower, you can lower volume, which will lower cortisol. The second variable that will increase cortisol is intensiveness. Not intensity, intensiveness. So it would be like using the RPE scale. Like if you go on a, 10, on a scale of 10 RPE, that will release a boatload more cortisol than if you do an effort at six on 10, okay? So, so how hard you are pushing an effort will be the second variable that will increase cortisol. In fact, those two variables are the two most impactful ones when it comes to cortisol, and normally they cannot be high both at the same time. So that's why you're gonna have volume-driven athletes where the intensiveness need to be lower. Uh, you look at just bodybuilding perspective, for example, Mike Israel, Dr. Mike Israel, proponent of higher volume work, but he pushes his sets a lot less. He uses a lot of six or seven RP on his lifting so he could so that he can do 20, 25 sets per body part for three, three times a week. Now, you can have high volume, but you need to decrease the intensiveness or you can push everything to the limit. But now you need to drop down the volume. These are the two main variables. Now, you look at other variables that also play a role in cortisol production. The third one is psychological stress. Training weight, the amount of weight on the bar will be included in that category, as well as doing something that will be super painful. One of the main reasons why uh, an all out 400 meter sprint is one of the hardest thing to train is because it hurts. And before you do it, you know it will hurt. And that creates a cortisol response because you anticipate the pain and discomfort. And the cortisol will be produced not only by the volume and the intensity of the effort, but because of the psychological stress of the effort. So that's why the more psychology stressful something is, the more cortisol you produce. It's a survival mechanism, okay? If you know you're gonna be fighting a tiger, while your cortisol will be jacked up before the fight, 
so that it can increase adrenaline, increasing your chances of survival during the fight. That's how your brain works. You have a bar on the squat rack. You have 500 pounds. You never squatted that before. You get anxious. You get nervous. You pace back and forth. You look at that bar. Your friends are cheering you on. You're slapping yourself in the face. You're trying to get revved up for that set, right? Because you're anxious. You're stressed out. You unrack the bar. Boom. It's easy. Why? Because you had a huge cortisol spike because of the fear, the anxiousness, which released adrenaline that potentiated your strength, but it comes at a cost. High cortisol, high adrenaline. Okay? So that's psychological stress. Fourth, neurological demands. The harder your brain needs to work, because you have a, a more complex exercise, because you're using a new movement you've never done before, because you're combining more than one exercise in the same series. All these things make your brain work harder. And the harder your brain needs to work, the more activated it needs to be. What activates the brain? Adrenaline. What leads to an increase in adrenaline? Cortisol. So the more complex a task is, a motor task is, the more cortisol you produce, the more adrenaline you produce. That's why with athletes, I prefer to stick to the same exercises for a long time. Because the more often you do a movement, the better you become at it, the less neurologically demanding it becomes. That's why Olympic weightlifters, uh, qualified Olympic weightlifters, can snatch, clean, drink, and squat six days a week. Because they've been doing snatches since they were six, by the time they're 28, it's no more difficult for them than a curl. It's not more neurologically demanding because it's ingrained, right? So every time you change an exercise, you increase cortisol, you increase adrenaline. So if you include lots of new exercises in the program, you better decrease volume and intensiveness to compensate, okay? And that's the, that, that, that's the, the, the fourth one. Fifth one is density. The less rest intervals you have, the more adrenaline you produce, the more cortisol you produce. And the last one is competitiveness. If your training is competitive, you're trying to beat the workout, you're trying to beat your partner, you will increase more cortisol because you need more adrenaline to win the fight, right? So any one of these variables can be pushed to a high level. But every time you push a variable higher, you need to bring other variables down. So that the overall cortisol, adre- cortisol is not the main problem, even though it's a problem. The main problem for an athlete is the adrenaline. If you produce too much, it will desensitize the receptors, which will, which will lead to shitty performances. Okay. So to get back to a guy who suddenly has low muscle tone, you need to decrease adrenaline. And it can be done by decreasing any of the six variables that will increase cortisol. If it's a serious state, you might need to decrease three or four of these variables at the same time. Okay. So that's what you need to do. And from, from a, a, a nutritional standpoint, you can increase carbohydrates. Carbohydrates is the number one best tool to fight cortisol. Because one of the main functions of cortisol is to maintain a stable blood sugar level when it's too, too down. That's why when you go on a keto diet, you feel so energetic. You go on an intermittent fasting, dude, I have a boatload of energy even if I have not eaten. Of course, because if you don't eat, blood sugar goes down, cortisol goes up to, to mobilize glycogen. If cortisol goes up, guess what? Adrenaline goes up, boom, energy. But it comes at a price. You can easily desensitize your receptors. You can feel great on keto and intermittent fasting for a short while, but it can come at a price of desensitizing the beta-adrenergic receptors, right? So carbohydrates, when an athlete has low muscle tone, it can be a great tool to decrease uh, adrenaline. Uh, you can have use melatonin, 
to use that. You can use phosphatidylserine, which will modulate cortisol. You can use glycine post-workout and evening to calm your nervous system down. All of these things will work. Now, one thing you'll notice is that when an athlete has low muscle tone, when you do the approaches that are required to regain sensitivity, you will feel like shit while doing it. Super lazy. Because now we're doing everything possible to bring adrenaline down, to resensitize the receptors. So while you're doing that, you're decreasing training stress, increasing carbs, taking magnesium, taking glycine. Um, your muscle tone will actually go down even more. You will feel more sluggish because you not only are you still resistant to adrenaline, you stop producing it. But that is done to resensitize the receptors. That's why a lot of... Uh, that's why when a, a, a peaking procedure can work, an athlete who feels run down before a competition simply has desensitized receptors. What is the traditional way to peak? You decrease volume, you add carbs because of quote-unquote circumvention. In reality, what you're doing, you're using the carbs to lower adrenaline and you're lowering the volume, which also lower adrenaline. You resensitize the receptors, boom, you perform better. The problem is that sometimes it's hard to time properly. But, but that's how it works. It has nothing to do with circumvention. It has to do with control of cortisol and adrenaline. Man, I love that. Just like that adrenaline-centric um, approach really makes a lot of sense with the risk. Because otherwise, it can get really complicated with you think all these different these things. When the, is it the muscle? Is it in the, you know this and that? And the nervous system being very esoteric. I, I really like that simplified approach. I do have a question. I will tell you, nine times out of ten, it's, it's adrenaline. For an athlete, I mean, we can actually go deeper than that because, for example, if an athlete uh, keeps pushing hard once he, his receptors are desensitized, what happens is he will actually, the body will try to produce even more adrenaline, okay? And what, what happens when you produce even more adrenaline is you run the risk of depleting no adrenaline. Remember, cortisol increased the conversion of no adrenaline to adrenaline. So if you keep cortisol high, when you're desensitized, now you are depleting noradrenaline. Now, here's the difference between both, okay? If you are simply desensitized from a, a beta adrenergic standpoint, muscle tone will go down, strength goes down, speed goes down, motivation goes down a bit. Uh, if you reach set number two, now you become depleted in the, neuro, uh, the, the, the noradrenaline standpoint. Now, one more side effect will add up to the list and it's a drop in focus and concentration because no adrenaline is responsible for these things. So if all of a sudden, not only is your performance going down, not only your muscle tone is going down, but you're talking to someone and you lose your train of thought. If you're losing your keys a lot more than usual, if you're reading an article and you need to read a sentence four times before it sinks in, great chance that your new, uh, noradrenaline is being depleted. That's step number two. If you still keep pushing hard high cortisol, third step can happen. You can deplete dopamine because noradrenaline is made from dopamine. So if the body tried to compensate by converting more dopamine to noradrenaline to keep that into balance, you deplete dopamine. Now you become depressed. So that's what often happens when an athlete doesn't have a choice to keep pushing or because the coach doesn't know. I've seen athletes after the Olympic Games, they just stop training altogether because they could never regain their motivation. Uh, so ideally, ideally, as soon as you notice a drastic drop in muscle tone, then you, you, you reduce adrenaline production to avoid going to step two because it becomes more complicated to fix. 
That's really fascinating. And I, I just have a couple more quick questions that kind of go along those lines. Um, I, I know you've, you've talked about the importance of nutrition with this. And it brings me back to, there was an anecdote you gave. Cause I, and I can see with the carbs too. Like I just think about my own experience as an athlete and I can see that. But I also, I go back to a, an example that you gave of, uh, I think it was like a bobsled guy or something like that who you had said he had a weekend where he like ate a ton of carbs, like yep. acutely, yes. I think. Yep. Like it was more of an acute thing, came in sluggish on Monday, but then he had to clean. So how does that fit? I'm trying to uh, reconcile how those fit together. Could you go into that quickly? Yeah. Well, what happened is Gab, uh, the bobsled guy, um, he, he, he had a weekend. Normally, normally Gab is someone who needs to train often and he spent uh, like Friday didn't train. The Saturday, Sunday, he went on a weekend with his girlfriend, so he didn't train either. And he had a test on Monday. Uh, well, not a real test, but a, like a, a personal test to see where he was at on, on this 30-meter sprint. And he, he had his worst performance in two, in two years. So I, I asked him, well, how did you feel? He said, well, my, my muscle tone was like super low. But he didn't say it like that. He said, well, my, 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 my muscle felt small. Okay, so my, my first reaction was, did you eat enough carbs? Because when you when someone says my muscle felt small, the first thing I think is glycogen depletion. He said, "Dude, I hate all the carbs. I went to town like 600, 800 grams of, of pure crap, right? So glycogen loading was not an issue. So the only so I said, okay, tell me exactly how we felt. Well, he said, I couldn't get my mind into training." Um, I couldn't feel my muscle contracting, uh, and my muscle my muscle felt squishy. Ah, that's different. That's not small. That's lack of muscle tone. Lack of muscle tone, lack of motivation, to me, indicates what? Low adrenergic state. So, And that's what carbs do. Carbs help you control adrenaline because it decreases cortisol because when blood sugar is high, you don't need to mobilize sugar to elevate blood sugar level when you have a lot of carbs av readily available in bloodstream whatever to be used for fuel right now you don't need to mobilize stored glycogen so you, you need less cortisol so since he didn't train for two days he had enough carbs so that he didn't require any mobilization he basically had no cortisol at all during the weekend meaning no adrenaline at all for the weekend and he went straight to training so it was very, very low adrenaline state. So, so what he needed to do was actually to reduce the carbs, in his case, to maximize adrenaline. Now, here's the thing. Some people will actually need to stay low carbs before an effort because their baseline adrenaline is low. If your baseline adrenaline is low and you eat a boatload of carbs, you will bring adrenaline even lower, making it very, very hard to get it high enough to be amped up for your workout and have a higher muscle tone or higher muscle contraction strength. People with excessive muscle tone, well, these guys will need carbs to bring it down, to avoid excessive stimulation. So I see carbs as a way to control cortisol and adrenaline. Do you need more adrenaline? Do you, and you have, if you need more adrenaline, you're going to have less carbs. Do you need to lower adrenaline? You're going to have more carbs. So normally that's why I like to have carbs I will have carbs pre-workout if the athlete has excess or high adrenaline level or high muscle tone or high cortisol. But if not, if someone has uh, uh, lower baseline adrenaline or normal, I will have the carbs after the workout to bring cortisol and adrenaline back down after the effort. 
So that, that doesn't linger for a few hours after the session, increasing my chances of desensitizing the receptors. Because here's the thing with the beta-adrenergic receptors, okay? They are the receptors in your body that desensitize the fastest. And it's easy to understand. It's a survival thing. Let's take... Let's take a look at the estrogen receptors. Okay, you, we all have them, guys or girls. Both have estrogen receptors. If I give give you a shot of estrogen, right, hundred times the normal level of estrogen in a male, it will will that be an immediate risk to your health? No. Okay, not even if I give you a uh, thousand milligrams of testosterone in one day, it's not a, an acute risk for your health. If you do that for months and months and months, it can lead to side effect due to uh, increase in blood pressure, increase in uh, maybe um, uh, bad, bad uh, fatty acid profile, stuff like that. But in the short term, it's not dangerous. Overstimulating the androgenic or estrogenic receptors in the short term is not a danger. So the receptors, when they are, these receptors, when they are overstimulated, they don't have to downregulate. They don't have to desensitize. It takes a lot for these receptors to desensitize. However, if we look at the adrenergic receptors, okay, if you overstimulate them, there is an actual risk for your health because heart rate can skyrocket. Blood pressure can skyrocket. <clears throat> these can be risky. That's why you have those kids dying from drinking too many monsters drink and going to play hockey. That's why you have these guys who are 28 and in great physical shape die of a heart attack because they take amphetamines when they go to a rave party. They just overactivate the adrenergic system, leading to a heart rate of like 2030 or something like that, and it just blows up. So overstimulating the beta, the, the, the adrenergic system is a real danger for your health. It's like the NOS in your car. I mean, you cannot drive on, your, on, on nitric oxide as your regular fuel with your car, you're gonna blow a gasket. It's good for a boost, but you cannot drive with that without breaking your car. Same thing with adrenaline. You cannot stay high adrenaline for a long time before something gives. So the body will very quickly desensitize those receptors if uh, it senses it's overstimulated. Yeah, the yeah the neurologic or the the. Uh, exercise physiology stuff as you present it, it just is so applied. And it really helps me to wrap my mind around it all. Um, and I do just have time for one other, one really, really quick uh, last little question clarification. When was the last time I gave you a quick answer? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think ever, but that's okay. Um, I I was just curious, uh, finally, on you had mentioned, so just wrapping my mind around this from a muscle tone, typically carbs would be good in peaking because usually if you're training hard, you'd have a higher muscle tone. And then yeah. the carbs are just helping get the, the adrenaline. Why you have high place. muscle tone is because of high cortisol, which leads to high yeah. adrenaline. Because when we explain stuff, I, even if it's just repeating myself, because I want those people that are listening to make those connection. When you when you, you are like peaking, you're doing lots of volume, lots of training. Your muscle tone will be higher. It will be higher because the higher training load increases cortisol, which increases adrenaline, and adrenaline increases muscle tone. Perfect. Hey, that was that was a that was a really quick answer. <laughs> um, that that summarizes. I didn't even know it was a question. I was just making a precision. 
Yeah, yeah, that that uh that summarizes it really well. So, and it, this whole talk has just really helped me to wrap my every time I talk to you, just expands my awareness, expands my brain, helps me to see it training in a new light. And it was just awesome sitting down and talking to you. I know we didn't get to any of the some of the applied, um, you know, athletic uh, training methods of the neurotypes and the omni reps stuff. But I, I know next time we talk, we'll be able to get into that, and I look forward to it. And so, thank you so much for your time, Christian. Really appreciate it. That's awesome. I always love it. Thank you. All right, that wraps up another show. Thanks again for being here. Really appreciate you guys listening to this show, being a part of what we're doing and kind of being almost a part of my mental stream and the things that I'm so interested in. And as I as I learn more from all these elite coaches and minds in the field, it's been a fun journey. You could really do me a favor in supporting this show by heading to iTunes, Stitcher and leaving us a rating or review. Uh, it would mean a lot to me and it helps spread the word of this show to people who might be interested in the same topics. Also wanted to give one last shout out to our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. They've been a longtime supporter of this show and they have an awesome blog and online store, very extensive online store with the best of in sport tech and training tools. So be sure to check them out, check out their blog and store. And uh, we are very appreciative of their sponsorship. All right, that does it for this week. We will see you guys next week with another great guest.